Now there was an aspect of uh, greed that you wanted to talk about. You were mentioning. Oh. Well, you remember well, ten years ago there were we had a quite a few documentary, so-called mm -hmm. documentary yes. films. They were made most uh, entirely on, on locations or at least in part. Mm -hmm. Yes. But this one was made in 1925, exactly the same way. And it was only by reason of Von Stroheim's insistence on reality that we did it that way. Mm. It was a bit unheard of then yes. to do a dramatic story in real locations, inside and out. Now, Bill, we come to uh, Ibanez uh, Torrent. Torrent. Yeah which was the first American film of Greta Garbo, as you well know. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your first impressions of her? Didn't you make some uh, screen tests of her, lighting and so forth, on Sunday? Uh, yes, uh, uh, a very brief test. She just came in and sat in front of the camera for a few minutes and mm -hmm. made a close-up of her, and she left. So I, I wasn't assigned to this picture. Tony Gaudio assigned to it. Tony was. Uh -huh. And fell one day with the, the camera in his hand and severed his little finger, hmm. the edge of the camera. Uh -huh. So they, they put me on it yes. while he was in the hospital. That's how I happened to be on the picture. Do you remember some of her first days in the, uh, when she was in the studio there? Did she have any difficulty? Uh, uh, getting the instructions from uh, Bell, the director, or not? Because of well, we had, a, we had an interpreter who spoke German, and she speaks German. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, of course, the interpreter spoke both German and English. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't difficult to translate. You know. Did she seem shy then, or not? Yes, very shy. Well, she was very independent. She, she quit at 5 o'clock at night, even then, the first picture. Oh, really? Every night. Yeah. I, I remember one thing that she was up changing wardrobe and uh, Mona Bell was trying to be very impatient, fast director. Mm -hmm. And he sent word up to her to hurry. She sent word back to tell Mr. Bell when I'm ready, I will come down. <laughs> <laughs> How very terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, she was, uh, she was always ready at nine. Mm -hmm. and ready to do a full day's work as well. It didn't cost the company to let her stop at five. No. no. Was that picture shot on location at all, or was that no. mostly? No. Okay, now why don't we skip over to, what, let's see, what would you like to talk about on that sheet there? And that's how. Remember working on um, um, this King Vidar film? Oh, yes, yeah, Jack Gilbert. Mm. Wasn't that the one where there was a famous love scene under uh, uh, the willows? Oh, yes. We, we put the camera in a little rowboat, I think it was, or canoe. Mm -hmm. Just room for King Vidor and myself and the two actors, actors and actors. Yes. And we went under the, right here in one of the reservoirs, and the willows hang over the water. Mm -hmm. And we just pulled the camera, the canoe right through the willow branches, and they wafted over the people's faces. It's rather a romantic setting. Peter mentions that in his book. Does he? Yes, uh, he does. 
Then you also worked on Flesh and the Devil with uh, Gilbert mm -hmm. and, and Garble. That was a good picture. Uh, that had a scene, did it not, of, um, let's see, was there a sleigh went through the ice and that? Well, we had some wonderful snow effects. You did? Yes. Chicken feathers, of course. <laughs> and they had, they developed some sort of material you could walk on, look like fresh snow and left uh, footprints. Real snow. Mm -hmm. By this time, I imagine that uh, Garbo was beginning to feel more at home and uh, yes, films over here. Beginning to speak a little English by then. Always from the beginning, was she very uh, easy in her response and in, in her uh, action on the set? Oh, yes, you're professional. Mm -hmm. yes. We have a print of uh, this film, Love, which, as you see, was uh, released early in 1928 at the house, and then, of course, oh, was yes. the uh -huh. first version of Anna Karenina That's right. that uh, MGM mm -hmm. made there. There are an awful lot of close-ups in that film. I've often wondered whether they did that purposely in order to uh, uh, save the expense of having to construct um, period backgrounds and so forth. I don't think so. I think it was just a technique of the time. Mm -hmm. Two fine-looking people. Mm -hmm. Giving the audience a good chance to get a good look at them. Yeah, then you worked on some uh, Shearer films in here too, didn't you? Yes. The actress, wasn't that... Uh, that was from a play, I think, Trelawney yes, of the Wells. Yes, Trelawney of the Wells. Sidney Franklin, fine director. Mm -hmm. And uh, The Mysterious Lady, that was another garble, wasn't it, with Conrad Nagel? Mm -hmm. I worked with Conrad just recently. He was in the last uh, 2000 picture. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Lady of Chance. Mm -hmm. Woman of Affairs, that was a green hat. Oh, yes, was there a little trouble with the censors on that? Could have been, could have been. Uh, we made a lot of that on uh, Bush Gardens in Pasadena. Mm -hmm. I remember one wild ride I had. I think she committed suicide in the story about running the car into the tree. That's right, yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a very hilly section of this Bush Gardens, and it's not a, not a wide road at all, and it winds around in the garden, ends in the, mm -hmm. under the river. So we had to put the camera on the front of the car, and she's driving on her way to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. At night. Yes. And she drove me down that hill pretty fast. <laughs> Garbo did? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know she could Very drive. Exciting thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Dream of Love. It seems to me that that was from a French play with uh, Joan Crawford. I remember seeing stills of a, a gypsy caravan sequence. And Wild Orchids with Garbo. Do you remember yes, that one? I remember that one. Where she dressed, I think she. Uh, didn't she put on the outfit of a priestess or something or other in that? Do you remember yeah, a Cambodian priestess? Yeah, yes, it was oriental background. I forgot to swear. Uh, trial of Mary Dugan looks as if it might. Was that your first talk here? Was it the last? Yes, that was the first dramatic talk you made at Metro. Mm -hmm. They'd made a musical before that. That was quite an experience because we had our cameras in, in booths mm -hmm. and. and six cameras working simultaneously because they did not know how to cut sound and sound was made on, on, on wax records. It's mm -hmm. very interesting. So we had to make all our close-ups, long shots, and medium shots at the same time. Hmm. And, uh, 
must have been quite a problem. It was, especially lighting a star, I promise you. Yes. But it all took place in the one, one courtroom. Yes, I remember the film. Mm -hmm. Were there troubles with uh, sync in those days too? Well, I don't, I don't remember that too well. Mm -hmm. They did have sound problems, and they built those two sound stages for this picture and mm -hmm. others to follow. They were absolutely soundproof. Mm -hmm. Double wall concrete. Yeah. Too like that in the business. Bill, how long did a picture take uh, normally to shoot in the silent days? But how long were you on the Oh, the average film, would you say? Well, some of these garbled films do in 30 days. 30 days. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. picture like this one took longer because it was the first sound and a lot of experimenting. Mm -hmm. Well, you're, you're, did the uh, did production become much more complicated when you passed over into the, uh, the sound period there? Well, photographically, this became a real problem. Mm -hmm. like, it's like modern television where they have multiple cameras. Yes. The, the scenes had to be uh, rehearsed thoroughly because there was no chance of, of uh, editing except in large pieces. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, a good, a good portion of the story had to be done in one one take. Mm -hmm. They could edit the film, but not the sound. That was the problem. Yes. Mm -hmm. So they tried to run as near a, near a reel as they could in one. But they run one that, take. That, that long. Yes. It went on and on and on. I remember one camera in particular had to catch a witness or an attorney. All he said in this long sequence was, I object. He got to his feet and said, I object. And the camera ran 600 feet. And somewhere in along 400 feet, this man got up and said, I object, and sat down again. So we saw a blank wall in the daily for 600 feet. <laughs> 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 oh dear. That's how we learned <coughs> what the laboratory could do to us because they, they they could only develop 200 feet of film at a time hmm. on a rack mm -hmm. I can take. Yes. And I used to watch the wall and running 600 feet there would be three separate developing racks developed differently apparently. Mm -hmm. and the wall would change color completely. No. <laughs> <laughs> Settle that old argument with the cameraman in the laboratory. <laughs> now, there was another silent film in there, The, the Kiss with Garble. Incidentally, we have a print on that. At the well, you have, yeah. Lou Ayers' first picture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you remember working with that director? Uh, Jacques Federer. Yes. Yes, wonderful man. Mm -hmm. He spoke He spoke only French and German. Were there any uh, interpreters necessary on that? Oh, we had to, but there's a sign language in picture making. Between director and cameraman, mm -hmm. you know before the interpreter starts talking what what's required. Yeah. You know. were his were his methods of uh, working with players uh, individual in any particular way or not? Well, Either. he was just a fine European director mm -hmm. and a uh, very practical man. He he made enough pictures to know how to make them quickly and mm -hmm. make them well. I just finished. Uh, I was in last in '56. I did a picture in. In Munich with uh, June Allison and Rosanna Brazzi called uh, Forbidden Interlude. Oh, yes. And Mrs. Feder was in it. Her name is. Uh, oh, Francois Rosé? Uh, Francois, yeah. Francois Rosé. Yes. Yes. And his mm -hmm. son is now an assistant director in Paris. And in one picture. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, now, let's see. That carries us pretty well into the sound period, doesn't it? And then, of course, here's uh, Garbo's 
first talkie here, Anna Christie, with Clarence Brown. He directed uh, quite a number of the Garibald films, didn't he? Oh, yes. She must have enjoyed working with him. Yes, they were Three of you must friend. have been quite a team. Yes, good friends. And I'm have sure she liked Clarence. Yes. Have you seen Anna Christie very recently? No. It's a little hard to sit through. It's kind yes. of a, you know. Well, we still had the multiple cameras there. Yeah. And didn't have the advantage of fine editing. Oh. It's, it's rather dull play, you know. Yes. Uh -huh. not, not really film material, no. I don't think. I can remember seeing uh, Romance and getting quite a thrill out of that at the oh, Chicago yeah. Theater. Uh -huh. Must have been the summer of 1930. As a matter of fact, that was the first time I'd seen Garibald. There was a little incident that I thought gave a better character analysis of Garbo than most things do. There's a scene where she's looking out a window and, a, and there's a, an organ grinder down there with a pet monkey, trained monkey. And he's supposed to come up and deliver a note to her. You see. And a very well behaved monkey ordinarily bit her on the finger. Mm -hmm. Well, this could have meant an yeah. explosion. Yeah. But it didn't. She went right on with the scene and picked the little fellow up and turned his little behind up and spanked him much. And you stop that. They put him down and went on with the scene. And after it was over, they put a little tape on him and all. Said nothing about him. Mm. But some people I worked with might have demanded a new monkey at least. You were making some interesting remarks, Bill, about uh, the Great Meadow down there, wasn't that? Uh, oh yes, that's. Uh, this was the first big screen that Metro produced. Mm -hmm. They called it called it grandeur, and it was a 70 millimeter negative, running vertically through the camera like the present Metro 65. Mm -hmm. And it was never released that way because it was during the Depression, and they couldn't get the theaters to make the transition to the larger projectors. Mm -hmm. Although they did make a reduction print, uh, most beautiful fine grain black and white you've ever seen, because of this wonderful large negative we have. Yes. Mm -hmm. I have some enlargements at home of the, made from frames. Uh, this material, mm -hmm. beautiful oh. enlargements. I like to see them sometimes. That wasn't in color, was it? No, it was in black and white. Oh. Mm -hmm. But it had a uh, this wonderful resolving power to this large negative. Fine grain quality. Yes. It's hard to find. Do you feel that by this time, by uh, oh, 1931 or two, that a production was be uh, becoming uh, more standardized? That you had most of the problems of sound films licked, or were you still working on them pretty hard in through here? Oh no! Even this picture, we we were using one camera now. Yeah. And I see that you did. Uh, a film in French here with uh, Feder, Francoise Rosé. Uh, actually, we made uh, yeah. if the Emperor knew that. Oh, I think it's about it. I made some others with Feder. He made a he made a French version or a German version of uh, Anna, Anna Christie. Christie. Mm -hmm. Yes. Did you work on that, Bill? Yes. What do you? Uh, uh, how, how would you uh, weigh the two versions, the German against the uh, 
the American version, which is... It was every bit as good. It was. Yes, mm -hmm. and they're fine actors. They brought over. What, who, who was in that with her? Do you recall offhand? You don't. I wonder where the negative on that is. I wonder if it's still around at MGM. Very likely. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see that someday. Did you make still more with the Fade Air besides this one here, too, or not? We, yes, we made the... Several more? All Spectre of Air or something like that, it was called. And we made three, four versions. English, French, German, and Spanish. And I made three of them. And they brought in another camera, and I think Henry Sharp made the Spanish version. Mm -hmm. With a different cast, and we we made two at once. Just move it, bring in, make it set up, do a scene in English, and then bring the German cast in and do the same thing. Hmm. Was this released in this country too? Under what title? I wonder. Uh, Green Ghost is called. Green Ghost. Yeah. What are your first recollections of films that you saw as a boy, Bill? I think The Birth of a Nation was uh, the first big film I remember. I know I saw that several times. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience at that time. Mm -hmm. And then I used to uh, proceed the serials and Charlie Chaplin. Those are the films I used to look at most. And why don't you tell us how you got started in the industry? Well, I uh, I used to go to the, the movies all the time as a youngster when I was going to school. And, uh, I used to cut lawns in the morning and then go, on Saturday that is, and go to four shows in the afternoon. There were only three reels to each program. The admission was a nickel. I could usually hit four of them on Saturday afternoon. And I think that developed a, a certain interest in picture making, in my life at least. I heard that there was a, an opening at the old Triangle Studios in 1917 for mm -hmm. assistant cameraman. And I went out there and applied and got the job the same day. Who were you working for there? Do you remember what, what cameraman was, oh, was yes. first on those? First, first picture was uh, a little hunchback cameraman named Steve Round. Mm -hmm. I think that was his name. Or I could be mistaken about that. But Gloria Swanson was a star. It was her first dramatic picture. Of course, I knew nothing about what to do except hold up the slate and when I was told to. And I soon learned to load the film, and load the still plates, and etc. Mm -hmm. uh, what other stars did you work with at that time, do you remember? In the Triangle days? Oh, Taylor Holmes, I remember. I was there a very short time, actually, in his closest studio. Mm -hmm. And I went over to Universal after that. And then who did you work with there at the very beginning? That was about 1918, was it? Yes, yes. I think that was about the time von Stroheim started. Mm -hmm. And then we... That brought uh, us into the six years of yes. him. There was one film that we missed and we went through before, and that's that uh, Woman in Gold, an independent production. Uh, released in January of 1925. You had a few words to say about that, I remember. Oh, it was just that uh, we went up there with a, a real skeleton crew. There was a director and the cast and a property man and myself. 
and no other assistance of any kind. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, I made this, made the stills also in still camera. You were on location for yeah, that. I drove up to Ashton, Idaho. That's the end of the world, the Yellowstone <laughs> Park. We went up to to photograph their annual dog sled race. Yeah. And they have a big. It's a big day up there. In the morning, they have a cute thing. All the kids have their own dogs, and they have little races in the center of town. And mm-hmm. it's happened. The streets are very slushy. The day we were there. And, uh, it was kind of fun to see these kids. Some of them didn't even have harness on their dogs. They just hang, they hung on to the dog's tail. <laughs> <laughs> Did this go into the film, or were you waiting for the well, big no, race? We, we photographed the big race yeah. to go into the film. Yes. Mm-hmm. The amusing thing happened. We, we had to travel by sleigh, or the horses. And we were way, way out of town in a valley, snow-covered, of course. And we were photographing a scene with the camera on the dog sled photographing the dogs in front of us. And we stopped for a breather, and up on the ridge there appeared a silhouette of a couple of men. Here we are, way up in the middle of Idaho in the midwinter, and a voice calls down, Bill Daniels down there? I said, yes. He said, can I borrow your baby tripod? <laughs> this Reggie Lanning, who I thought was in Hollywood, just appeared on the top of the top of a hill asking to borrow a baby tripod. Hmm. I thought it was an unusual happening. It certainly was. Mm-hmm. Now, another film that I missed uh, asking you about, Bill, was The Temptress. Oh. I think that followed The Torrent, did it not? Yes, yeah, it was Garbo's, Garbo's second picture. And they started with, Tony Gaudio started it with Maurice Stiller directing. And for some reason, stories story reason, I imagine, they stopped production and didn't start again for several weeks. So when they did start again, they put Fred Niblo on it, and uh, Tony was busy doing something else, and uh, so they signed me to it. I think I made about half of it. Mm-hmm. You completed the picture. I completed it, yeah. yes. Now let's take a big leap and uh, land in the middle of the sound period there, Bill, and you had some remarks to say about camera mobility in Grand Hotel. Yeah, Grand Hotel, yeah. Well, up, up until this, uh, about Grand Hotel, up until we started this production, we, we had no way to move our cameras the, the same as we had in our silent pictures because mm-hmm. the cameras are so clumsy and heavy. So we didn't have the equipment, nor did we have the finders that were accurate enough to do uh, close work. But there was one exception to this, it was a, a Bell and Howell camera mounted in a, in a soundproof bungalow, we called it, a soundproof case. And this camera had a, a prismatic arrangement where you could look th- directly through the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now this, was a, this equipment was small enough to put on one of our large camera cranes. So by using this camera and uh, looking through the film, I was able then, for the first time in sound pictures, to make the, uh, the wonderful moving shots that uh, seemed so perfect for this story. And I believe it was the first time we were able to do it. It does give a beautiful sweep there when the camera moves across the lobby. And yes, the elevator. We, we, yeah. 
we showed this big lobby, and we came. I remember one shot in particular. We brought Garber through the entrance doors of the hotel lobby, and incidentally, it was her introduction, and we were able to sweep right down to a big close-up of her as she signed the register at the desk. Oh yes, I remember that yeah. shot very well. All in one moving shot, mm -hmm. and it would have been completely impossible to do it at that time without this equipment. Then, and as you desire me, something rather amusing was remarked to you by Von Stroheim. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah. Well, I've told you before about the hours we spent with Von Stroheim, his working hours, 36 hours, but not at all unusual. And we always worked at night rather than day, and that, that meant at least a 16-hour stretch. This was in the old days. The old days with Von Stroheim. So that was Von Stroheim, the director. And then in later years, in this Garbo picture, Von Stroheim was playing a part in it. And of course, now he's an actor. But one day, about 5.30, Von Stroheim asked me, he says, doesn't that so-and-so, meaning George Fitzmaurice, the director, <laughs> says, doesn't that so-and-so ever go home at night? <laughs> I thought it was a pretty good sideline. Now, when you came down here to uh, Rasputin and the Empress, that must have been quite a time with three Barrymores on, on the leash. Yes, it was. Yeah. Although they're such a one, they were such a wonderful family. Uh, hard to gather that much talent in one family. There was an amusing story about a stand-in there. Oh, oh yes. Uh, Ethel Barrymore did not want to play the uh, play it in the picture at all, and Metro had quite a time convincing her that she should do it. So when she finally agreed, they they decided to give her what they call the red carpet treatment. And we were briefed on uh, how to handle her, how to keep, please try and keep her happy, and so on. So on. But on about the second day of the picture, uh, I was lining up a shot, and, and I had a, an operator there who used to stand in front of the camera when I wanted to make a quick lineup. And I called him Grandma. And uh, <laughs> I had my head in this bungalow, and I couldn't see anything except through the lens, and I, I saw. Al and Grandma standing next to me, and I said, Hey, Grandma, get in there. And with that, Ethel Barrymore steps in from the other side of the camera and said, Where do you want me? <laughs> from that time on, we were very good friends. She was very charming. Everybody remembers the final close-up, Bill, in uh, Queen Christina with Garbo. Oh. Tell us a little bit about making that. Well, if you remember, it was a process shot of the uh, the bow of a sailing ship, with Garbo standing right in the bow, taking her dead lover back to Spain. And we had to start with the with, uh, with the full screen. That is, we were back about 80 feet from the screen with a three-inch lens, and we then had to move the camera into a big head close-up of Garbo for the fade out of the picture. Well, again, we didn't have the equipment to do it properly, so we put the camera on a, a little four-wheel dolly, and it took three men to to pan the camera into position. Well, I looked over the magazine and, and got the vertical line correct, and another person took, uh, took care of the tilt by looking through the finder, and the third man, of course, changed focus. Mm -hmm. And it was a very difficult shot to do technically, but it certainly was effective. Oh, it's wonderful on the screen. That uh, was uh, this close-up of Garbo was effectively used as an opening gambit as well, was it not? Uh, for instance, in Camille, that shot. Where oh, she's shot on the stairway. Yes. Yes. She's looking down. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it was just just good construction to get uh, a big close-up, an interesting close-up of Gargoyle, as early in the picture as possible. Mm-hmm. Because once you see into her eyes and see that beautiful face, most of the audience was sold. Yes, they certainly were. <laughs> uh, how did you react to uh, Garbo's playing in the death scene of Camille? Do you remember when she was working in that? Well, it impressed us all so much on the set that was after the director Cukor said cut, we, no one said much. It was just uh, a very powerful thing, even photographing it. It was moving even to yeah. to you, even though you participated in the, the rehearsal and everything. Then there was an interesting story you were telling about Romeo and Juliet and some of the problems of getting all the garden on the screen. Oh, this was uh, in the garden scene. Uh, this, <coughs> me, this garden was built on the largest set, largest stage at Metro, and it, it encompassed the whole stage. And it was the only way we get the entire garden into the picture was to use a reducing glass in front of the lens. And in this shot, we had the balcony with Juliet on top, and way at the foot of the balcony, maybe 50 feet away, was Romeo. And from this setup, we do scenes that ran eight or nine hundred feet long. And if there had been the slightest mistake in dialogue, they would repeat the scene from the beginning and, uh, until they got it perfect. Mm-hmm. Well, this went on for days because there was a lot of work there. And I finally suggested to the group, director and the stars and all that, it might be wise to just loop the line for this long shot and not be so meticulous about it, the figures being so small and all. But they all turned on me like I was some sort of worm and told me that I just didn't understand Shakespeare. That was the end of that. Then there were a good many retakes on that, weren't there? Well, uh, not so many retakes, but uh, takes on each scene, a number of takes. Hmm. Scenes that run five, six hundred feet, we might do 25 or up to 45 times. And uh, it seemed a little unnecessary. In fact, Irving Thalberg told the, the production staff the next time they got up to uh, above take 30 or 35 along in there, to let him know immediately, and he'd come over and put a stop to it. So it happened the very next day. and. They sent for Thalberg, and he came hurrying over. And as he came on the stage, Cukor ran up to him and said, Oh, Irving, I want you to see this. So we made three more takes for Thalberg. So <laughs> that's the way the whole picture went. Let's spot check on this list of fine productions from here to the end, Bill. How about uh, Marie Antoinette? What can you tell us about that? Well, as I remember, quite a long time ago, but mostly, mostly I remember it was a, was a four-month nightmare, as far as I was concerned, because every set was such a large one, and uh, usually it had two to four thousand people in each set. In fact, the sets were so large that, that, that we couldn't keep the lights on them. We, we used all the lights in the studio and as we moved from one set to the other with the possibility of coming back to the original set, the lights would all have to be moved. So I hired a secretary of all things, a cameraman, and she made a chart of the lights as I had set them 
for the original scene and each light was numbered and, and on the chart it was indicated where the light hit and, and how many mm -hmm. foot candles it would read because as I say the lights would have to be taken down to be used on other sets so it saved us a lot of time when we came back to the original set mm -hmm. you could restore the original set the lights ahead yep. of time there was one set in particular that was the grand ballroom and uh, it was just two rows of huge columns and at the base of each column was a beautiful crystal uh, chandelier sort of, uh, that's not the word for it, but it was a candle, candelabra. Yes. And in order to get that, the effect of those, these candelabras, the candles were the only light in the room, we lit the entire set with 150 baby spots, only 500 watt globes. So it took a little while to set them but it, it really paid off, quite effective. I remember one incident in the famous scene where Marie Antoinette is beheaded and we had a, a big set on the back lot with a guillotine and we shot through the guillotine down into a crowd of some 4,000 people. And it was about 3.30 in the afternoon and the light was very good actually, but the director, Van Dyke, who never came up to our high platform because he didn't like the height, uh, kept calling up to me, Bill, isn't the light getting awfully yellow? I said, no, we can get some more, a couple more scenes. But he kept insisting that the light was yellow. So I finally went down and talked to him. He said, well, Bill, you've 4,000 extras. A lot of them haven't worked for weeks. He said, let's give them another day. He said, I say the light's too yellow. What do you say? <laughs> I just go along with him. <laughs> so he got the extras back another day. That's the kind of a man he was. Oh, wonderful. But the, the, the studio couldn't quarrel with him because I believe at that time we were about two weeks ahead of schedule. Oh, yeah. So he'd saved them many times that amount in, oh. in his efficiency in other directions. Oh. Now, on Idiot's Delight, uh, the director, Clarence Brown, had uh, kind of uh, given production a head start, hadn't he? And how, in what manner? Do you want to tell oh, us yes. about that? Oh, yes. Clarence was always like that. He was one of the finest technicians in the, in the picture business. Always was, and probably never had an equal. So in this, uh, for this picture, we needed a background of Swiss Alps, because the whole story takes place in a lodge in the Alps, high in the Alps. So Clarence went over to Europe and uh, took a still man with him and made a panoramic set of stills and brought them back. And the art department, Metro, made reproductions in, in paintings, painted backings of these stills. It was the most beautiful paint job you ever saw. And the backing itself was a, went around about half the stage, about 180 degrees. And the set faced this backing and the, the entire set was glass in front of like the view windows of any mm -hmm. Alpine lodge. Yes. So from that stand standpoint, it was just a beautiful set. Of course, it was a little hard to keep the lights out of the glass. Oh, well, that was your worry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Then Anochka was uh, Garbo's... The first comedy, yes. really. Yes. And, of course, he was delightful in it, as everyone knows. Mm -hmm. Lubitsch was a lot of fun to work with, and we had a fine cast. Now, in those uh, in these later years, you've done, uh, oh, at least, well, it seems like about four or five films in the documentary manner, which you remarked was more or less a return to the, the, uh, the greed style. Naked City, wasn't that one? Yes, Naked City was done in uh, 1947, 
she must have been in 48 release, I guess. Mm -hmm. Early in uh, yeah. 48, yes. But we we did this much in the same manner as Reed was made. We made almost the entire picture in New York City using real interiors and, uh, mm -hmm. of course, the exteriors all over the city. We spent something like six weeks looking for the proper locations previous to the start of the picture. Yeah. And we had no big big names in it, big names, stars. And uh, Art Hellinger was a producer, and he called me in before we started and told me, this time New York City had to be the star. It was up to me to see that it was. Mm -hmm. So that gave me free reign to really find the best spots. Did you have any trouble concealing uh, your camera from the crowds there? Did oh, we did at first, but... I stole an idea from the uh, FBI. I've seen a, a little documentary reel they made in which they hid the camera in a panel truck and put a two-way mirror in the back glass window. And the camera being inside the darkened truck could not be seen from the outside, mm -hmm. but they could photograph through this mirror mm -hmm. people they were under surveillance. Under surveillance. Yes. So we equipped a station wagon with two-way glass mirrors all the way around. And we photographed scenes right in the middle of New York City, following our actors, mm -hmm. and got natural reactions from the people he bumped into, uh, or when he would run, they'd look, turn and look naturally, mm -hmm. never realizing there was a camera anywhere. Did anybody seem to spot them as actors at all? No, they, they wore no makeup, mm -hmm. and uh, they were comparatively unknown. Yes. And uh, so we had just wonderful natural reactions to what seemed like an unusual situation. Yes, it's very interesting. <coughs> Why don't we take the uh, rest of those documentaries just as a group? There was a next one you made apparently that you mentioned was uh, Bright Victory. Where is that? Oh. One? Mm -hmm. Where did you make that one, Bill? We made this in, in Philadelphia at the Valley Forge Hospital. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it was a uh, army hospital. Mm -hmm. It had been uh, abandoned. Uh, but it was in good condition, so we, we used uh, it's a tremendous place. It must be a half mile long, mm -hmm. the buildings, and then a quarter of a mile in the other direction, long, long corridors, and very effective. Did you have to do much restoration, or was no, wasn't it no, in that it bad wasn't shape? It had just been, I think, decommissioned about a year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, uh, it was about this time in Naked City that we developed what we call our quad lights, uh, which is just a, a bank of four. RFL two photo floods on a very light knockdown stand, and we carried these lights in little cases. And we carry enough of them with us to go any place in the world for black and white film. Mm -hmm. We carry enough of them with us in, a, in, a, in, our, in an airplane to be completely equipped yeah. for pictures of this kind. In fact, Naked City was made almost entirely with 20 of those quad lights, and we've been using them ever since on it for similar work. Mm -hmm. For natural effect, is that? Well, yeah, they're lightweight and they're small and they have a lot of there's great power in the mm -hmm. light. Yes. And we could get a balance between the interior and exterior very easily mm -hmm. uh, by the uh, use of these photo flood lamps. Yes. Would you include uh, When in Rome among your documentary style? Yes. Films? Yes, we made uh, When in Rome. We made uh, a lot of it in Rome mm -hmm. and in uh, Naples and in. Uh, see, did we go to Florence? I've forgotten. But we, we used natural interiors. We even went into the 
the basilicas and uh, St. Peter's and St. Paul's outside the walls and photograph scenes right in these places mm -hmm. with just our photophot equipment. Where did you get your technicians and were they uh, American or did you bring them with well, you? Well, uh, we took along the head electrician and the camera operator and the camera assistant and mm -hmm. that's all. And the other people we, we used Italians. They're fine workmen and uh, we had no trouble at all. Language difficulties? No, no problem. We, there's always someone that can speak both languages but uh, Sign language is the best, oftentimes, as yeah. long as you're talking about the same thing. Agreed. And never wave it a whack, it belongs in this group, doesn't it, too? Yes, that was made, uh, it was made in, in Virginia, in Petersburg, Virginia, and the whack base with Rosalind Russell and Ray Wilson. Mm -hmm. and again, we used the whack barracks and the, the whole base, Fort Lee, Virginia. Now, to skip back a little to 1950, you were telling me about the makeup and the lights in Winchester 73. Well, well this was a, one of the biggest westerns Universal had made up to that time, and it was a very successful one. I think Jimmy Stewart's still collecting money from it. Uh, the unusual thing about this picture was the extensive use of infrared film to get day for night effects. We, of course, had to develop a special makeup to prevent the beards from looking too heavy. But uh, it's amazing the, the results you get day for night with this medium. Then in Harvey, there was something uh, unusual about the setups there. Well, Harvey was a wonderful picture to work on. I saw the play four times and with three different actors. and I thought it was going to be one of the world's finest pictures, but uh, I don't know how well it did. But we did one little trick that was probably unnoticed. but. Harvey was the rabbit, of course, who was supposed to be a constant companion of Jimmy Stewart. So whenever Harvey was supposed to be in the scene, we'd compose our shot to allow room for Harvey and he'd set up. Family Honeymoon was an unusual film in uh, 1948. Well, that was a delightful comedy with the Claudette Colbert and Fred McMurray, but the unusual thing we were we were able to accomplish was the first use at Universal, at least, uh, with a very large, what we called Adelux backing, which is a, a transparency-type backing, which is illuminated from the back. Mm -hmm. And we had one 60 feet long, which is a, a reproduction of the Grand Canyon. And it was very convincing. It looked exactly like we were on the location, the location. Mm -hmm. And then you were talking about the Shrike, Bill. Well, the, sh the thing we did on the Shrike was interesting only, would be interesting only to another photographer, because we made the entire picture, the exteriors and interiors, with the Eastman Background X film. Mm -hmm. The reason for doing that was to get rid of the rain with a large screen projection, and it worked rather well. Now, in Strategic Air Command, you worked in this division, didn't you? Yes, that was my first this division picture. And it was a, re a real pleasure to have again the, the, the large negative, this time being color negative, mm -hmm. again for the fine resolving power and fine grain. But also unusual in this picture was that it was the first time I've seen film made at 50,000 feet in the air with these wonderful 
B-47 bombers and the big B-36 bombers. As a matter of fact, we used a B-36 bomber for a camera ship. Hmm. And we, put the, we photographed the scenes below us through the optical glass that was part of the old Norden bombsite equipment. So it was just perfect for our use. Then there was a changeover in film between uh, Glenn Miller's story and uh, the far country, wasn't oh, there? Oh, yes. Uh, the Glenn Miller story was, I believe, the last Technicolor three-strip picture made in Hollywood. Because just at that time, we made the transition over to the Eastman single-strip negative. And our first single-strip was a picture called The Far Country of Jimmy Stewart, we made up in Canada. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it was it was a pleasure to use the lightweight cameras for a change up in the rocks. <laughs> that <it> was. <laughs> How'd you like to list for us, Bill, the the films that you feel represent your peak achievements? What would you put in that group? Well, well, we're going back a long way, but one reason I selected The Great Meadow is because that was, that was the first time we had the large negative grandeur film, black and white. And Grand Hotel, possibly because it had so many stars in it. And The White Sister because of the, the treatment we gave it, the pure white sets and uh, having two fine stars in it also, uh, Clark Gable and Helen Hayes. Helen Hayes. Yeah, yeah. Cream Christina had some lovely things in it, beautiful sets, and uh, Garbo, Jack Gilbert, and Marie Antoinette, possibly because of its scope. Every set was the largest that Metro ever built and uh, filled with more people than they usually employ. So Ends Our Night was a completely different story of two or three people, but refugees all around Europe, and we were able to get some very dramatic things, we think. In this uh, naked city, possibly because it was all made in New York City and in real apartments and police stations and homes and on the streets and on the bridges of New York City. Winchester 73 was one of the large westerns with Jimmy Stewart made it universal. And I think we had a fairly good combination of exterior and interior and night camps and day camps, day being done on location and night camps being done on the stage. The Glenn Miller story, as I mentioned before, was the last three strip. And here was an opportunity to use mood lighting and mood effects as the story demanded. And incidentally, we did quite a lot of this picture in Denver, hmm. in real dance halls where Glenn Miller traveled. Strategic Air Command was, was in this division and color, and of course it was wonderful subject matter. Working 50,000 feet in the air with the B-47 bombers and the big B-36 bombers. It was a wonderful opportunity to see things we'd never seen before. Forbidden Interlude and Cinemascope and color was done all in Munich, Germany. And we had an opportunity to photograph the beautiful castles inside and out, and these tremendous music halls that you find all over Germany. Of course, the countryside 
is hard to equal anywhere. Mm. Thank you, Bill. I wonder if you'd care to uh, speak a little bit about your feelings on the future of the motion picture industry. Well, uh, as I told you before, I, I'm very optimistic about the future of the picture business. We've had a few lumps lately, partly caused by TV and certainly caused by the rental of or the sale of old films for TV. But the TV demands so many uh, pictures and so many stories that uh, TV people do not seem to be able to provide. I can see nothing but good coming to the picture business because the picture people are the ones that have the talent and have the facilities to produce good pictures. And of course we're hoping for pay television so it'll become more practical mm -hmm. to produce pictures in the big studios for TV. How do you feel about the, uh, the continuous experimentation bill of processes? Well, that is the thing that all cameramen are unhappy about because we we're constantly changing from one medium to another. When uh, we have two or three excellent mediums available to us now, the main problem is that we're faced with big screen. This is the producer's idea, and it's a good idea to have as large a picture in the theater as possible to make it as different from your TV home set as possible. Having much better audience participation and having much more clarity brilliance than you get on a TV screen. Uh, we've accepted the big screen as a necessity, but we ha what we have not accepted is the way to make good photography on a big screen. As I said before, we have two or three very good ways of doing it. We have CinemaScope that Fox is using, we have this division that Paramount is using, and we have Technorama that, that uh, Technical has developed, and we also have the Metro 65 millimeter system, all of which are good. But all of them cost more than the standard blow-up that so many of the studios are still using. In fact, Metro makes only their largest pictures on their good system, or their 65 millimeter system. So we're still, and so we still have to project on a big screen, but we still are using a tiny negative that is not adequate for the big screen projection. Mm -hmm. The grain structure will not stand it, nor will the definition stand it. So it's about time the studio, even within the studio, or all the studios got together within their own managements and set up a standard, forgetting the cost but thinking only of results. Thank you very, very much, Bill Daniels, for giving us your time and the benefit of your experience and these wonderful reminiscences here on the tape. This interview has taken place at the Beverly Hills Hotel on April 3, 1958.